Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Three police officers were shot and killed and three others wounded in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Coming up a little later in the program, we'll be talking with Sue Lincoln, the news director at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge, to get the latest on the latest police shootings. That's coming up later in today's Smart Talk. First, voter turnout is expected to be high this fall when Pennsylvanians will vote for president, a U.S. senator, and several other statewide offices. In years when voters are choosing statewide appellate court judges, turnout is usually low. One reason is most voters aren't familiar with the candidates. Critics of the current system of electing judges have long campaigned for a merit selection process. Actually, there's legislation in the House right now that would do just that. To talk about it today is John Geddes, who is Professor Emeritus, former professor who served as an associate dean and later vice dean at Widener University's Commonwealth Law School. Professor Geddes, Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, uh, as you hear, we have a lot going on today. So if you'd like to uh, talk about the uh, merit selection of judges, I encourage you to get on the phone now or in just a few minutes, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, merit selection of judges. You've written about this extensively over the years. You know, I said in my introduction, it's something that we've discussed in Pennsylvania for a long time, but nothing ever seems to change. Why not? I believe the legislators are hesitant to take any vote away from the electorate. And that there there is a great deal of discussion and argument, and it usually centers on the issue, well, you can't take the right to vote away. And I think Legislators listen to that. Mm-hmm. But, and there is a but, uh, there are dozens of other states in the country who do have a merit selection or a different way of choosing judges than what Pennsylvania does in electing judges. Only six states, including Pennsylvania, still elect their judges. Uh, it's virtually, uh, it's it's nearly unanimous in the United States that some sort of appointive system merit merit uh, is kind of a loaded it is uh, and we'll talk term. about that yeah um, but all but six states have some sort of appointive system where whereby a some neutral panel or some representative panel a representative of the electorate and of the government uh, gives a panel of names to the governor and from that panel he makes an appointment you know, we're going to talk about uh, all the aspects of this, but uh, and I will talk about that panel in just a moment. But what do you see as some of uh, the the, the um, negatives of the current system that we have in Pennsylvania? Oh my! Well, the first the first problem is that voters, uh, the electorate, when it's when we're talking about appellate court judges. The electorate doesn't know who they are. They don't know anything about them. They're voting blindly, and usually, they're following. Uh, they they frequently follow a party line, a party vote, and that's another problem. The judges will do just about, uh, or the, the 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 people seeking judicial office um, are vetted by the political parties. Um, I recently participated in a panel with a. Uh, judge from York uh, who had recently been elected, and he said, 
part of the elective process was to travel to every county in the state and meet the head of the political parties. Um, the idea is that that gives the appearance that the judges uh, owe something to the political parties. And judges are supposed to be independent. They're supposed to make their decisions solely on the law and the facts in the case. You're giving a different appearance there. The other thing is this. In order for them to run to be elected, they need money. Increasingly, they need greater amounts of money. Uh, it's expensive to run a judicial campaign. Well, guess who they solicit to give them contributions? Members of the bar. <clears throat> members of the Bar Association practicing lawyers. And then those same lawyers appear before these persons when they're elected as judges. Uh, and again, the impression is somehow the system's fixed or the judges um, favor those who have given them large amounts of money. Um, so those are just a few of the problems. There's one more that has recently become much more serious, and that is third-party single-issue organizations from out of state conducting campaigns, running ads, supporting judges who they believe will um, make decisions that favor their particular policy or their particular um, issue. That's raised the stakes because the amount of money that those organizations spend, who, by the way, are not even from Pennsylvania, uh, is great. And the judges have to, the, 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 the candidates have to somehow counter that. So it makes fundraising all the more important. And, you know, you've got a vicious cycle. Those out-of-state organizations, that's a direct result of uh, Citizens United? Yes. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court case. Right. When, and we've already seen some of those advertisements for our U.S. Senate candidates, outside organizations supporting, in this case, uh, U.S. Senate candidates, uh, Katie McGinney or uh, Pat Toomey. Yes, indeed. And uh, that is a direct, right, a direct result of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, Citizens United decision. All right. Now, let's talk about what you would see. And by the way, we have a, f a couple of phone calls, and I'm glad we do. I'll get to them in just a moment. Um, that uh, merit selection, let's take that, that word merit out, because uh, you're right, that is a loaded word. That makes it sound as if, uh, you know, you only can become a judge based on merit, and then someone will ask the question, well, what merit is that, and how is it defined? But Selection of judges, a panel would do it. What, what do you support? Um, um, the, under many of the systems, uh, the initial search, uh, the initial uh, winnowing of, the, of candidates is made by a panel. The panel is supposed to be uh, representative of various constituencies. You've got members of the general public, you've got members of the bar, you've got judges. Um, the idea is you've got some people on that committee who can judge the merits, the experience, the skill, the judicious uh, temperament uh, of individual candidates. You've also got members of the public who will balance that view with um, an idea that the idea that the judges are supposed to be in general accord 
with the mores of the of the society. They're not supposed to follow it exactly because remember, uh, judges have to enforce the Constitution and preserve minority rights. But they're in touch generally um, with um, public ideas, um, and they choose the few that they consider most highly qualified, and that list then goes to the governor. The governor picks a member, and in some states, uh, he selects the, the uh, judge, and in some states, there's also advice and consent of the legislature. So usually a Senate or uh, yes, uh, yes. A Senate approval. Um, and then the, the, the judge uh, is appointed. Uh, after a short number of years, well, three to five years, the judge runs for election. But then there's a record of of what he has done, of of uh, the fact that he has not he has handled a normal uh, load of cases, that he has done the things that judges are supposed to do. And if he is uh, at that vote, he is then approved by the electorate, then he's in for a longer term. Usually it's about 10 years, although it can be a little more or a little less. And the idea is you need terms like that for judges because they must be independent Mm -hmm. when they're sitting as a judge. Okay. What then is to keep politics out of that procedure, out of... Because... You have the panel you described has a nice representation, but if a few names are recommended, the governor is going to make that appointment. What is to keep politics out of it? Well, you don't have the political parties um, pushing the the candidates. They're not they're appointed. There's no vote on them. Uh, The members of the public uh, that could be handled by making certain that that you equalize the number of uh, from each party who are on that panel so that they will balance themselves out. Okay, let's take uh, some phone calls. Let's go to Harrisburg. Maria is on the line. Maria, you're on the air. Thank you so very much. Um, My grandmother was actually a suffragette and she fought for the right for women to vote in this country. And so I take my right to vote very, very seriously. I consider it a sacred duty. And I am quite concerned about a process that would lead to people being disenfranchised and taking that sacred right to vote away from people. I mean, people have fought and died for that right to vote. And I think that this so-called merit selection of judges system would only lead to a lack of transparency. It would lead to politics under the radar, behind closed doors, and it would not serve the interests of the public well. All right, Maria, thank you very much for your call, Professor. Uh, There is the opportunity to vote on these judges. Uh, They are elected. They have a a relatively short term, and at that point, after there's an opportunity... After they're appointed. After they're appointed, there's an opportunity uh, to vote on them. So the vote hasn't been taken away entirely. Um, uh, You don't have the... uh, what, What you've done is make certain or make it more likely that the voters can have some idea of of what the judge is about uh, in the in the old system the old system the pardon one. me the present <laughs> system the current system um, 
with appellate court judges, the voters don't have a clue. They don't even know who they are. That's the complaint that is frequently made. Now, there's an argument, and I'm, I'm being... I'm not being an advocate. I'm trying to bring out all of the uh, points here. There is an argument to be made that at the common pleas level, at the county level, that it should be uh, an elective vote. But when you come to the uh, appellate judges, the Commonwealth Court, the Superior Court, the State Supreme Court, um, there are any number, a large number of studies that say that that disclosed the voters didn't know anything about the people they were voting for. Well, and, and that's a problem. What makes it a little more difficult uh, also is that by law, judicial candidates can't talk about issues. Oh, that is that is true. They uh, look um, due process in this country uh, and in the Pennsylvania Constitution requires notice and opportunity to be heard by a fair, unbiased, impartial tribunal. Um, not only is the the judge, the tribunal, supposed to be, in fact, uh, unbiased, unprejudiced, but that judge must give the appearance of fairness and impartiality. The idea is uh, perception counts in our system for the for the public to have faith in the judiciary. The, the judges must be independent and they must be perceived as independent. And that means they can't talk about issues that may come before them, about, about issues that will come before them, because that gives the impression of prejudgment. Let's uh, go to the phone now. Andy is in Lancaster. Andy, also, I understand you also don't want to see the vote taken away. I don't want to see the vote taken away, but I do agree with some of the points and the problems that he's talking about. The outside money not being out of the raise, and then again, the lack of knowledge. But the problem is the way the system is set up, that's what needs to change. For instance, imagine if they made a level playing field. Me as a voter would be able to actually ask questions. Because, you know, you did some kind of, to find out more information about these candidates. There was so much money poured in from outside to this last election, people don't even realize how much the fellow court has changed last year. It's really swung the pendulum. And... We are lacking a lot of knowledge, but the answer isn't to take that not away from us and let someone else make a decision. The answer is, how do you get us more information? All right, well, Andy, let me ask you this. If you had an opportunity to ask a, a, a candidate for a statewide appellate court a question, what would it be? Well, basically, it's going to be, since you can't ask forward, you can ask about their past uh, decisions. So you can learn their past records and how they voted. You can ask some questions. Why did you vote this? Why did you make this decision on the past? You know, that's a, that's acceptable because it's something they already decided. Mm. So you can ask their ideas about the past. Mm-hmm. You uh, know, again, and then from that, I can kind of judge a little bit. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that way, but at least it tells me something about the candidate. Mm. Right? And again, if you limit the amount of money, their amount. If everybody had the same playing field for money to raise, then they're not trying to raise money. The state can do more. And maybe cost a little bit more, but they can do more to have some kind of way for us to meet the judges. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you very much for your call. Is that doable? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think that by asking, uh, while I'm sympathetic to the question from the the, the listener, uh, it seems to me that if you ask a judge why he did uh, things in a number of cases in the past. 
you're attempting to make a prediction that in the same circumstances, what he will do in the future. And I think that that comes close, although I appreciate the intent um, of, of, the, of the listener, uh, that comes close to asking uh, what he will do in the future. You know, if, and th- actually this has, I, now that I think of it, this has come up. Uh, if judge, uh, uh, if candidate X says, I prosecuted the following cases, and I was really, uh, this was the outcome in these cases, okay, uh, then the impression that might be given is this is someone who in every case or in most cases will, will favor uh, the prosecution. And to the extent that that's going on, you've got a problem. I, I don't know what an ethics panel would do uh, with those questions, uh, but I see that you're, you're coming perilously close. It, it's almost like the dog whistle uh, approach, if you've heard of that, of, of candidates saying certain things, using certain phrases that convey to their listeners a prediction of what they would do in a certain situation. And I, I think, while that may not be the intent of these kinds of questions, that could be the result, and it m- might be problematic. What about Andy's uh, issue with money? Um, I mean, we mentioned Citizens United, so the United States Supreme Court has already said that this outside money can come in. Are there ways for Pennsylvania legislators to limit the amount of money that uh, would go into a judicial race? Um, I'm not an expert on Citizens United, but my understanding is you cannot limit the amounts. Uh, and they have, the lower federal courts have enforced that pretty strictly. Uh, one thing you could do is force disclosure uh, of where that money's coming from, what organization, and make it uh, widely public. Uh, I think that's about as far as you could go. And that's what is being attempted in a number of states. You mentioned that uh, Pennsylvania is one of only six states that uh, we elect our judges completely. I mean, there are some other states do have some other election where voters do participate somewhat. Um, But, you know, one thing that uh, many people see is how politicized appointments to the United States Supreme Court have been. I mean, we have, with the death of uh, Justice Scalia, we've had an opening now for how many months, and we have uh, a Congress that won't vote on it uh, for political reasons. And, you know, even when we do have the hearings, they've been so contentious, and we have members of Congress trying to score points. I guess what I'm saying is that uh, probably most people would not want to see that on a state level. Um, first, let me let me make my position entirely clear on the present situation for filling the vacancy of Justice Scalia. Uh, it's one thing not to vote, but I believe under the federal constitution that the Congress has the obligation to consider the candidate which they haven't done. And by consider, I mean, they, they need to do it in an institutional fashion, Have uh, interview him before the committee. I'm not saying he must be voted in or he should be voted in. Or I'm she. Saying, or she. Right. Um, there is a duty to consider 
under the Constitution. And they are, by politicizing it this way, they, they are not fulfilling their constitutional duty. I'm not the only person who has that opinion, by the way. I've seen it floated uh, in a number of, uh, of places. Uh, the other thing is this. Um, it's only in about the last 20 years, um, beginning with the nomination of Judge Bork. Um, there even grew out of that the, the term, I've been Borked. Right. Uh, one of the parties went after him for his um, particular philosophical political position, which was rather conservative. And they pulled out all the stops, and they made, they made the hearings totally political. And the other party has picked that up, and they've degenerated. It was not that way. It was not contentious in the same way prior to the nomination of uh, Judge Bork. And then uh, Judge Thomas came along, and uh, it became uh, a soap opera. And now, whether it was like that before or not, I mean, history says that very little attention was paid to it by the public before Judge Bork. Um, but now, it's obvious that every single and we can't get federal judges approved through in the Congress. How many uh, federal judgeships do we have that have been left vacant because the Congress won't act on them? Well, the 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 solution to that is simple: eliminate the legislature from the state process. Uh, have this panel um, select the panel very carefully, make it broadly representative, and let the governor appoint. Singly, alone, loop the legislature out and you've eliminated uh, that problem. Now, that creates another problem, and that is, won't the governor always appoint someone from his own party or her own party? And the answer to that one is, uh, what the, I believe they've done in Delaware, each appointment, the appointments have to be switched each time between each party. In other words, if a Democrat is appointed in 2016, then a Republican has to be appointed in 2020. Mm. That would eliminate that problem and balance things out uh, while eliminating the, the politics before the legislature. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're going to be uh, talking with uh, the news director of WKRF uh, Radio, Public Radio, RKF, that is, in uh, Baton Rouge, coming up in a few minutes. Also hear from Dr. D. Jerry Madonna at the, the Republican National Convention in Cleveland in a few minutes as well. Right now we're talking with John Geddit, who is Professor Emeritus, former professor, served as Associate Dean and later Vice Dean at Widener University's Commonwealth Law School. And uh, we'll be talking with Professor Geddit for just a a few more minutes. Uh, so, as I said, that legislation is in the House right now. It is a House bill. Uh, don't know what its future is right now, but we'll be paying close attention to that. You said something earlier that uh, kind of got my attention. We were talking about even the perception that a judge is biased. Uh, last week, a lot of controversy about uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Associate Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, talking about uh, Donald Trump, the Republican uh, presumptive nominee, and how much she didn't care for uh, Mr. Trump. And uh, she gave three different interviews. And, you know, many people were like, what is she doing? And there could be numerous cases that would come before the Supreme Court if Trump would be elected. 
But that word you used earlier, perception, that maybe she didn't break any rules, but written rules, put it that way. But that perception will stand if Trump would be elected that she couldn't be impartial. Uh, it certainly it certainly might create that that impression. Once again, the idea being that judges are sub- supposed to be, they must be perceived as independent and impartial. The Supreme Court doesn't have any troops. It doesn't have an army. It it operates by being persuasive and reasoning, and the citizens must must support um, the court for that reason. Um, I think it's really important to note that Justice Ginsburg realized she had come close to the line, uh, close to an, an ethical breach uh, in doing that, and she recanted. recanted. She indicated she was uh, sorry. Uh, she regretted having done it. And, you know, I think most judges um, would conclude that it, it was very close to being a, a, a breach of ethics because... It, create, it might create the impression in future cases that she was biased against Donald Trump. Well, even if she apologized, though, I mean, that ship has sailed. That doesn't cure it. Uh, and as I said, if Trump would be elected president and there would be a case having to do with the administration come before her, I mean, wouldn't any attorney want her recused? Of course. Uh, but then that raises another problem. Recusal is pretty much, except in the most extreme, outrageous, obvious cases like the situation in West Virginia where a company gave $50 million or, or some ridiculously high amount of money, $5 million it was, um, to one of the justices for his campaign uh, to remain on the West Virginia Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, that was a situation where there should have been recusal. But in most other other cases, it's left up to the judge herself to to say whether she can remain impartial and unbiased. That does not cure the perception that has been created of uh, partiality and bias, and that's the reason why they're not the judges are not supposed to open their mouths about um, matters that will come before them. Uh, you can't cure it. Why would you? You can't do cure it? the perception. I mean, she's a, a, obviously a very intelligent uh, person, a very thoughtful person. Why would she do that? She lost it. Evidently, uh, she feels very strongly, and um, her emotions got the best of her. That that can happen. That can happen with judges. We expect our judges to be judicious, always to be uh, behaving. As a judge, that is impartially and without without emotion, but they're human, and mm-hmm. every now and then uh, there there might be a slip, and I I think this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Gettit, professor emeritus at uh, Widener University's Commonwealth Law School, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Enjoyed talking. Thank you for having. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. All right. Well, the other big news, uh, there are several big news stories going on right now, obviously. But uh, last Thursday and Friday, the Republican National Convention's Rules Committee met in preparation for today's uh, opening of the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Uh, in Cleveland for the convention is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, professor of public affairs and 
and director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program. There we go. Are you there, Terry? Uh, okay, I think we don't have him on the line, uh, Maddie. Would you uh, try to call Terry Madonna back if you can? Uh, is he there? Terry, are you there? I can hear you okay. well. All right, there we go. All right, so on a normal, every four years during uh, a normal summer, the opening of a political convention would be huge news. Not that it is not not now, because uh, we have a lot of people who are wondering about uh, Donald Trump and uh, everyone saying that this is going to be an unconventional convention. But we have so many huge news stories, things going on around the world that could have right. an impact on that. The shooting of the police officers in Louisiana yesterday, right. the uh, terrorist attack in Nice on Friday. So... Terry, with all that said, what is the mood in the convention? I mean, is, yeah. is the focus on the convention? You've been to many of these yeah. things. Or are those outside news stories kind of like the buzz of the convention? Yeah. Well, right now we're having each of the state's delegations are having their breakfast. I and most of Pennsylvania's reporters who are covering the convention, Scott, are at the caucus breakfast. Uh, Paul Ryan of of course, uh, I think everybody, your listeners all know the speaker. He's uh, uh, he's going to address the convention or the delegates from Pennsylvania in about 15 or 20 minutes. John Kasich, who's not even going to the convention, think about this. He's not even going, will come on Wednesday and talk to the Pennsylvania Republicans. Here's what I'm seeing. The general tone right now seems much more optimistic and upbeat uh, than I would have expected. And then I remembered, you know, Trump won our state by 35 points. These delegates are Trump delegates. But to go to your question, I don't think there's any doubt that the emphasis on, on, on the police, the emphasis on national security, I think that's going to take hold at this convention. And we're likely to hear uh, much more emphasis on those topics. Today, for example, when we go to the convention, Paul, at 1130, the emphasis, day by day, there will be a topic, and that topic will be, the speakers will be lined up to address that topic. Today, it's national security. So you can imagine what these speeches are going to be like, filled with passion and pleas for a stronger American involvement overseas, obviously in the Middle East, fighting ISIS. But I think you're exactly right. The backdrop is ominous at this convention, given what we've seen in uh, Louisiana and, of course, around the world, as you accurately point out. What about security around Cleveland right uh, now? I mean, I have to admit that that is a question that I really don't like to ask because it is unusual. And whenever we have a large gathering of people today, think Olympics, uh, think inauguration, that obviously security is a number one concern. But coming on the right. heels of what's happened in the last few weeks, right. what do you see with security? Well, I got in last night, checked into the hotel, and then immediately went to the convention hall to get a look at it. And I, I have been to a lot of these. I have never seen security like this with the, with the cement barricades and the fencing 
the kind of fencing, Scott, where you can't climb over. There's no place to put your feet or your fingers. And maybe just in a walk, I had to figure out how to get in because with the barricades and the fencing, it's not all that clear. And to follow that up, I probably saw in the 15 minutes it took me to figure out how to get in at least 100 officers. The, the number of police and the structural changes that they made in order to protect, uh, you know, the citizenry is unbelievable. Nothing, and you know, that I've seen even, you, you know, with a papal visit to Philly, nothing, nothing compares to this. Mm. So, again, as you said, uh, the theme for tonight is making America safe again. Just in the right. last few weeks, and it is influenced by the result, by uh, some of the things that have happened in the last few weeks. Donald Trump has uh, uh, called himself the law and order candidate. Uh, what can we expect to hear yeah. about uh, making America safe again? Yeah, I think we're going to hear a lot of criticism of President Obama and of his foreign policy, of his dealings with ISIS and in general in the Middle East with Syria. We might even get into the refugee situation. I think the Republicans are going to latch on to this, and we're going to hear a lot of of, uh, of the speeches. And, boy, they have. I don't have the list with me, but there's a list that goes on endlessly. It looks like there's about 30 people are going to speak today alone. Uh, now, they're, in theory, supposed to be short, you know, 10, 12-minute speeches. We'll see. Uh, but I don't think there's any doubt about the intensity level over these issues that are, that, are, that are going to be in evidence. And in some respects, politically anyway, I think it plays into the hands of Trump and to the Republicans who want a change in policy, uh, both domestically and, and, and in terms of national security. So we're going to hear and see a lot of that. Uh, the other... The other point that I that I wanted to make is there are a large number of absences from this convention. A number of six, for example, we have 13 members of the Republican delegation in, in the House of Representatives. Only six of the 13 are planning to be here. And, of course, one Republican senator, Pat Toomey, he's not going to be here. So... A lot of us sort of mistakenly thought that there would be a lot more trouble within the convention hall itself. Uh, you mentioned the rules when you started this discussion. Well, as you know, there'll be no rules changes. The delegates are going to remain bound. And, and so I, I think this convention, given what's happened around the world, here's the connection, might be more harmonious than many of us were led to believe earlier. We'll have to see. It's not a prediction. Because the one word I would use to describe both conventions is unpredictable. We just aren't quite sure what will happen. But I think you're exactly right in the tenor and the tone of this year's convention. And whether that takes root in terms of what, how the delegates actually act. Well, and by that, are, are you referring to some of the Trump rallies where there actually has been some violence on the floor? Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, I don't expect, I'll tell you what, I'd be stunned if the demonstrators can get into this convention center. I mean, it would be something, given what I just described, amazing. And I don't think the Cleveland police, I think they're going to allow free discussion and free speech and marching. I think if this turns violent in any way, I think it's going to be put down 
pretty sharply. I'd be surprised and quickly if, if, if it wasn't. And that's yet we don't know. I mean, that will play out in the course of the week, and we'll have to see if it materializes uh, and to what extent. It, it will materialize, but maybe to, to what extent. I mean, if it remains peaceful, everybody has a right to demonstrate, as you know, keep it peaceful. But, I, you know, there, there, there is no two ways about the material effect that, that could have uh, with what's going to go on inside the convention hall. I think that now looks much more scripted and much more well-mannered and well, you know what I mean? I don't think you're going to have delegates standing up and screaming for points of order, you know what I mean? And trying to get control of the, you know, seize control from the, from the uh, Republican leaders who are running the show. You know, Terry, you know, we've heard a lot of comparisons to 1968 this year. Um, you know, when there was chaos, there was rioting at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And when you say, uh, you know, demonstrations, protests put down, right. uh, the, 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 no one wants to see that sort of thing again. But also with the, the unrest, civil rights, of protest against the war in Vietnam. Is there right. any comparison? Is there any potential yeah. for that kind of thing at uh, either one of these conventions? Because, you know, yeah. Cleveland's getting all the attention next week. Philadelphia will get the attention next week. That's correct. And, you know, there'll be lots of demonstrations in the city, as we understand it, in Philly. You know, a number of permits have already been issued, mostly by, San not mostly, but some of them by Sanders groups. Now, since Bernie Sanders has endorsed Secretary Clinton, we'll see if they, they materialize, but we would expect delegates, you know, the delegates to see and, you know, to, to observe and see if they have any effect. Now, in 1968, the convention for the Democrats was a complete train wreck, both inside and outside the convention hall, because there were delegates inside the convention hall who railed at what was going on outside, at, the, at what the Chicago police were doing and at, and at Mayor Daley. I don't think, if anything, I think we're likely to have much more harmony inside both of these convention halls. I, I, and, and for the Republicans, that's a big surprise to me, because I did think it would be. Now, we don't know yet. I mean, when we talk in the next couple of days, we'll know what goes on inside. But I'm now b believing that there's a lot more unity developing. And who knows what, what we've just talked about, what's going on all around the world. Paris, Nice, Louisiana, you know, uh, I mean, that all may, Dallas, that all may have a unifying effect on both parties, given the big differences that they have on how to approach these issues. So we're still in a kind of formative stage of all this. But just one other point I want to make about, about this convention. The biggest thing that the Trump people want out of this is one word, unity. They want to leave here with party unity. Oh, yeah, they'd like a convention bounce. And, you know, conventions often produce superstars. Remember Barack Obama and what happened in 04? Oh, yeah. Convention, right? Yeah, the speech he gave. Another guy, uh, Bill Clinton, gave a bad speech, but it didn't seem to hurt anybody. Well, but he got a, and you know, you when you were talking about a bounce, 92. Uh, Clinton got a huge bounce out of the Democratic convention in New York that year. Largest in history, 16 points. 
the average convention bounce for the Republicans is slightly under six. The average bounce for the Democrats is just slightly under seven. The bounce itself doesn't really make or break an election. Uh, they fade pretty quickly. And so I'm not, but I'm back to my original theme, one word, party unity. This is a must for the Republicans this year. They cannot afford to leave this convention without a unified party. And the selection of Pence as the VP choice seems to have gone down very well with delegates. He is, Trump has reassured conservatives that, uh, you know, that, that's working, that, you know, he, and he needs to do that given how eclectic his positions have been on most of the big issues. So I really think, uh, I, I mean, and I'm surprised by it. Now, you know, when we talk later, I may change my mind <laughs> on it because it's a, as you know, you've covered a lot of these yourself. This is a work in progress. <laughs> well, Dr. Cheater, G. Terry Madonna, Franklin Marshall College, we'll talk to you uh, a little later this week, okay? You got it, my friend. Thank All right. you. Thanks, Terry. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Three police officers were shot and killed and three others wounded, one critically, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana yesterday. The shootings occurred less than two weeks after police shot and killed Alton Sterling, an African-American man that occurred during a struggle. Five police officers were murdered in Dallas and another black man was killed by police in Minnesota all in the last two weeks. Police identified the Baton Rouge shooter as 29-year-old Gavin Eugene Long of Kansas City, Missouri. Joining us to discuss the latest is Sue Lincoln, who is the news director at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge. Ms. Lincoln, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. I am sorry to have to do it under these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we wish you didn't have to do it under these circumstances. So I, I know the question is broad when I ask what is the latest. Is there anything that uh, we have learned this morning? We have not learned much more since last night other than the names of the three officers who were shot and killed. Uh, one was 41-year-old Matthew Gerald with the Baton Rouge Police Department, 32-year-old Montrell Jackson with the Baton Rouge Police Department, and 45-year-old Sheriff's Deputy Brad Garofola. Um, the off the sheriff's deputy that was wounded seriously in the firefight um, is still fighting for his life. Has he been identified yet? He has, and um, but through the family on Facebook, it hasn't publicly been identified, and I'd rather not say anything. I understand. Is, we haven't learned anything more about his condition this morning? Um, just that he is still alive as of last check um and that uh he was fighting mm. so you know sue i i really hate asking these what is the mood kind of questions but i think it's one of those things yesterday when um, m most of us were watching cable news uh, and we kept seeing the same video over and over and over of uh, the police presence at uh, the shooting scene i mean these events are so huge. 
it is hard for anyone to imagine who hasn't been in this position. You mentioned to me this morning that you've gotten about three hours sleep, uh, and I'm sure you've been talking to other people around the country like me uh, who was wondering uh, what's going on. But I will ask a what is the mood kind of question. What are you seeing, hearing this morning? What I'm seeing and hearing this morning is a city in mourning for the unnecessary loss of life. The Alton Sterling shooting incident brought to the forefront the disconnect that we have in this city. It's a southern city, um, but the disconnect between socially and economically advantaged and disadvantaged, the disconnect between black and white. It opened a dialogue, although what you all saw were the protests the weekend following Alton Sterling's shooting. You didn't see what happened in the subsequent week, last week, when faith leaders and members of the community all across Baton Rouge came together and began the dialogue by sitting down in small groups and asking each other, how is it with your soul? which goes beyond how are you, Um, but asking what people were feeling in the wake of what happened with Alton Sterling. It's a start to finding common ground and finding understanding. And as tragic as this shooting incident was that had us lose these police officers, You know, nothing could have brought us together again this quickly. So you're saying that the city has come together? Yes, the Mm. city has come together. The um, son of Alton Sterling and his mother have made public statements saying this was never what they would have wanted. Justice doesn't come at the end of a gun. And... So that investigation into Alton Sterling's shooting continues. It is in the hands of the federal authorities. It is not going to be swept under the rug. People have confidence that there will be some findings, some recommendations of what this city can do better in the way of law enforcement and community relations. And they are willing to wait for that. In the meantime, we wrap our arms around the families and the law enforcement officers who have lost um, one of their member who have, we have lost some of our safety by having lost them. Our guest during this portion of the program is Sue Lincoln. She is the uh, news director at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, talking about the shooting of three police officers uh, yesterday, or I should say the shooting and killing of three police officers yesterday. Three other police officers were wounded, and uh, one is in a critical condition. Uh, so, you know, Sue, one of the things that was most striking to me as someone who has covered these kind of large events before is that uh, the authorities are waiting until one o'clock your time today. Uh, you're in central time zone, one o'clock uh, to provide uh, an update. Usually, you know, those updates occur a little more frequently, but I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad thing, just saying that it's kind of unusual, which leads me to believe that they're trying their best to get information and accurate information, so they're waiting a little bit longer. 
That is absolutely true. This particular investigating into investigation into these shootings is in the hands of our Louisiana State Police. Um, and they had a vast crime scene. There were several square miles of the city under lockdown, shelter in place, as they investigated yesterday. Um, they did not reopen that area to traffic to anyone until easily 12 hours following the shooting incident itself. And as far as I know, I haven't been by there this morning, but as far as I know, the uh, actual location where the officers were shot and killed, where the suspect in this case was shot and killed, is still a crime scene taped off. They're still processing evidence. So they wanted to be sure that it was indeed a lone wolf because there was so much misinformation coming out yesterday about a possible conspiracy. Somebody said something on social media and some of the networks picked it up and that apparently is not in fact true. This was an individual from Kansas City, Missouri. He was not from Baton Rouge. He had no overt connection to Baton Rouge other than what he had seen, as far as we know, with the Alton Sterling shooting. And so they want to be sure and reassure the public here and the public at large that this was indeed um, an individual acting out, not a situation where um, there is some vast conspiracy to kill cops in Baton Rouge by Baton Rouge folks. So we only have about 90 seconds left, and uh, this is, th- that happens all the time with that one. Is it because of this 24-7 news cycle, uh, and a lot of times things that are reported as fact or uh, are being speculated on. In the minute or so we have left, is there anything that you can tell us as a local reporter that we haven't heard or hasn't gotten a lot of attention nationally? I don't know what more I can add to the dialogue that is actually confirmed. Perhaps the thing that struck me most yesterday was a statement made by our governor at the end of the press conference that they had. He said, there simply is no place for more violence. It does not address any injustice, perceived or real. It is just an injustice in and of itself. Sue Lincoln is the news director at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge. And Sue, I know you're on your way to uh, covering this again today, but uh, thank you for taking a few minutes out of your your busy schedule and uh, talking to us this morning. You're very welcome, Scott. Thank you. And everyone will be thinking about Baton Rouge here in central Pennsylvania. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, there's a new uh, website out there that uh, you can learn about uh, getting help uh, for mental illness uh, and uh, other mental conditions. That's uh, tomorrow on Smart Talk. We'll learn more about that. Something really, it's really kind of new. And uh, so that's something that's coming up on tomorrow's program.